Welcome to Practice Freedom. What if you could hang out with owners and founders from all sorts of healthcare private practices, having rich conversations about their successes and their failures, and then take an insight or two to inspire your own growth? Each week on Practice Freedom, we take an in-depth look at how to get the most out of both the clinical side and the business side of the practice, get the most out of your people, and most of all, how to live the healthy life that you deserve. I'm Mark Henderson Leary. I'm a business coach and an entrepreneurial operating system implementer. I have a passion that everyone should feel in control of their life. And so what I do is I help you get control of your business. Part of how I do that is by letting you listen in on these conversations in order to make the biggest impact in your practice and ultimately live your best life. Let's get started. Today's episode, I'm really excited about. This is the second episode after the reformat, the second full interview. And uh, it's with my friend, Dr. Jason Lake, private practice, optometrist, owner, multi-location, also currently runs two organizations, Perk and Optiport, which are alliances for helping optometrists run better practices and, and get better, better deals on their stuff. Just a great guy who's lived the whole life cycle of starting a practice and growing it and helping the community. We talk about a whole bunch of fun stuff, not the least of which is this idea that we can't be all things to all people in terms of our patients and what it is to have clarity of our best customer, best patient, which is, you know, you got to understand, is this a, a patient or a customer or a, or a client or how are you seeing them and making sure we know what they want. We talked about profitability and how to think of that in terms of, is it okay to be profitable and what does that mean? Uh, how do we find it? Which kind of led into core values, which then ties back into sort of that target market, understanding our core focus. You know, what, what is it we're here to do? Uh, and there's some real serious and important and, and useful work we have to do to get clear on that. One of the things he talked about is, is this idea of prediction and data. We, we're running this as a business. And so uh, seeing the patterns and how to respond to that and how that affects our ability to um, feel good and be free of our practice, understanding that it has its own life and that some seasons are slow and some seasons are just busier. So a lot there. Uh, we're just still scratching the surface. I hope you get a lot out of this. To me, it was a good picture of the overall state of it, of running a, a practice as a business. And we're going to continue to find some nuggets to go deep on. And so I'm looking forward to future conversations, but this one was a, a great one. I felt really good coming off of this. I hope you get something out of this as well. Today, I'm really excited to, this is our second episode. And as I was talking to Jason beforehand, I'm still getting my legs under me on this podcast in the new format. I've had such great feedback in the past and I'm hoping to get right back there. But you know, this is a really important subject. I think we can make a big impact in the world of private practice, both for the people running them as well as the patients and people we take care of. And so it was worth it to me to be out here and a little nervous trying to figure out how to get this because I think there's a real impact here. And so I'm excited to have Jason Lake here to help me in the second episode put language to and put some color to why this is important and what it is to make a difference and run a great private practice and what we can do with that. So welcome, Jason. How are you, man? I'm great, Mark. Thanks for having me on. This is fun. I'm excited. I'm really glad that you're here to do this because we've been on a couple of different journeys of what it is to help private practices as a community. And you've been on a journey from your private practice. And what I said inspired this is the three problems that get names, I think, in private practice is how do you run it like a business that's profitable, scalable, smooth, consistent, high quality? And how do you also take care of patients, manage doctors, understand what it is to provide real care that matters? And then as somebody who's entrepreneurial, 
running that business slash practice? How do you live a great life? Because I believe that doctors and healthcare providers are not set up for doing that. They're not taught how to do that. And so the expectation that that's possible is a confusion. And a lot of doctors and practice owners end up suffering a lot, uh, trying to live at least two or if not three lives at the same time and wondering why they're not enjoying it. What's your take on that? Well, I, I think a lot of it's how you're trained. I can remember being in optometry school and going through and what I thought I would be doing when I graduated and, you know, looking back 25 years, I mean, they're certainly related, but it's not what I thought I'd be doing at all. And I think time changes everything. And I think sometimes academia does a great job of getting us in the forefront of how to take care of patients. I don't know that they necessarily do a great job of preparing for what it's like to actually run the business. I think when I first started, it was about, oh my goodness, how am I going to take care of these patients? And it was such an overwhelming thing early on, right? Like you, you're, they call it practice for a reason. I tease all of our young docs about that. I'm like, you're not going to be perfect. Your patients don't expect you to be perfect. But I think as time went on, I think what I realized was is that I had to start to segment and compartmentalize a little bit. Because when you're in patient care, you need to be 100% in patient care. But you also have to run the business because if the foundation isn't there, you're not going to be able to take care of your patients at the highest level. So it, it is all intertwined and it depends on the modality that you choose to practice them. But if you're going to own a practice, you have to get really good at balancing all three of those. And it's totally possible. But quite frankly, the only way you're going to learn that is by talking to people like you, podcasts, EOS is a great system for that. And I think using those tools is going to help you to gain that balance you need. And that's what I spend a lot of time doing now is helping people get that. You know, one of the things that I think is a factor here is that it didn't used to be this way. You didn't have to be a business to be a healthcare practitioner. But now the world is much more competitive and you have to understand to, to run competitively. You have to be efficient. You may have to scale. You do have to add value. You do have to tell a story about why you're different or better. And I think that's true. And I think most practice owners get that, but they underestimate the gap between where they are and the ability to do that and where they need to be. Every doctor, like particularly medical doctors, will tell you right away, like I've got a dozen, like a decade of education in my field and zero business experience, zero business knowledge and zero management training. And they know what, what zero means. But they don't know what 100% is, and they're way underestimate how far they've got to go to, to get management skill and business acumen into their business. I don't know if you I'm, I'm going to date myself, but you ever heard the term of tic-tac practice? No. Like mm. the breath man, right? So yeah, for sure. early on in my career, I had a real passion for teaching people to buy and sell their practices. And so one of the mentors who taught me, he basically said, well, that's a tic-tac practice. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the guy pops in a tic-tac every morning. So his breath smells good. He works all day and he goes home at night. He didn't do a lot to it. He didn't enhance it. So he goes, it, it's a practice that you can do a lot with. And I think that you've hit the nail right on the head, Mark, is the reality is margins have shrunk. And as entities have entered into the space, whether it's retail or private equity or whatever the competition is, you really have to sharpen the saw a little bit. You got to get good. And whether you are good or not is going to dictate the quality of care that you can get. You can be the best doctor in the world, but if you don't have the right technology, you don't have the right stuff, it really isn't going to matter because the patient's not going to perceive it. You can't practice in a less than ideal set of circumstances and the patient feel like they got taken care of. You, you could be great, but perception in this world today is kind of everything. You have to be aware of that. Yeah, I wonder, I think that optometry and dentistry 
as healthcare practices have some common DNA. They're different time frames. So it seems like maybe you can correct me. It seems like, I don't know, maybe I'm backwards on this. They had to get into business because retail entered their world. They started selling stuff. You know, and so I guess as if you're an optometrist, you always had to sell glasses and then eventually sold contacts. And then, so we learned we had to sell things potentially. It was just in the supply chain. And then the practices started combining because I guess maybe 20 years ago, those were separate things, much, much more separate. Your expertise in the dating of that. But dentistry has flipped to a lot of patient elective cash pay services that are high margin. And that's how they transform the practice. Other healthcare, it doesn't have the same kind of stuff. Like you go to a family practice, but there's not a lot of optional stuff. Like what else can I buy? There's no F&I office when you leave. The, you know. yeah. Believe it or not, the three that are most, I can't speak for chiropractic. I'm not knowledgeable there. Veterinary, dentistry, and optometry actually have a pretty parallel pathway in a lot of ways. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that insurance drove a lot of that. So one of the things that dentistry and this is debatable, but one of the things I think dentistry has done well is they've capped the sizes of their schools. So they dentistry can still push back against insurance. Well, the problem is the changing psychographic. So in other words, you have a lot of people coming out today, Mark, whether it's dentistry or optometry and probably veterinary. I'm not as knowledgeable there. My brother's a veterinarian, but he doesn't own a practice. Um, I will tell you, as they've come out, they don't want to own the practice because they can't find that balance. That's not part of the DNA. Certainly it still exists, but it's not as high. So one of the things when I get to talk to students in optometry schools, I talk to them about is whether you want to run or not, you need to understand how it runs because you're part of a healthy organism and a healthy practice. So I think as we've dealt with those pressures, a lot of it's those, you know, for us, it's vision plans, for dentistry, it's dental plans. I talked to a dentist just last week who said, we're getting reduced reimbursement. They're actually going backwards. You know, I, there's one particular vision plan I started taking in 1998. Mark, I get the exact same payment for an exam that I did in 1998. It has not increased. Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy. So the reality is that when you talk to these providers, inflation and all those things are certainly pressures, but you've got to look for things outside of a capitated fee schedule to be able to make up the mm -hmm. difference. You got to go faster. You got to see more people efficiently. And Certainly, billable services are still a part of it, but in reality, things that are controlled out that are outside your control, I guess, you've got to control some aspects, whether that's nutraceuticals, you know, dentistry, you've got Invisalign, orthodontics, things like that, and optometry, obviously. We're about 50-50 retail, 50-50 professional. So we, we have pretty good control, and you would think that, but so many of the things we sell are also capitated by those vision plans to the point that you struggle with those inflationary measures. And I think 2023 is going to be a real year for that. It's kind of all catching up right now. And I think this is a year that we're going to see some folks really struggle with that if they're not prepared for it. So a curiosity, so in more medical practices, we kind of find, and in dentistry is a good example of this, that you can charge the patient directly, cash pay, more efficiently than going through insurance to the point where like it's cheaper and easier for some things just to pay cash. Now we're talking about middle class and up. When we're talking about when there's low income, it's a very different game. But if you're like, I got to pay this insurance, I got to do all this stuff. And you're like, well, let me, let me just forget the insurance, cut them out entirely. Let's go direct to consumer on this and let's charge them a fair fee. It's the consumer's like, that's actually a reasonable price. <laughs> I can actually buy that compared to what the, you were going to have to go through the insurance, $50,000 for this other thing. And it was really not going to be, it's only going to be $5,000 that comes through. And so there's that model of like, let's just break the whole system down and go direct to consumer. But then in the more retail driven side, we're trying to do both. We're trying to sell a pair of glasses at appropriate margin. We're trying to sell services. And we're also trying to get all this insurance stuff at the same time. And I'm curious, is that going to crack open where is that whole that foundation, you're like getting the same exam fee for 20 years 
that eventually has to break, right? At some point you say, just forget it. Yeah, but there's two things you hit on there, Mark, that are really relevant. So dentistry I hit on earlier is they've held a lot of their class sizes stable. You go, like I live here in Missouri, I know that you go around the great state of Missouri, a lot of dentists, they are not full providers for dental insurance. You're going to pay them and they're going to send in the claim and you're going to get reimbursed because there is not oversupply. Now, right now, it's hard to find an optometrist. So I would say a lot of that is, is that optometrists have chosen to take a lot of vision plans that don't particularly pay well to fill their books because they need the patients. Right, right. You were going to talk about a bubble. It's an inverse bubble. So on average, if you look, and I'm just going to talk vision, dentistry is a little bit different, but it, when you look at vision, the average customer pays about 7 to $8 a month for their vision plan. And if they have insurance, I've heard providers say, well, you don't understand. They'll come to me. They don't care. They perceive that they bought a service. I'm not going to tell you it doesn't happen. It's really not the norm. People are going to use their insurance. You don't blame them for using their insurance. And the reality is it is a little bit of a shell game. We're going to pay for this and not pay for that. And you got to do this and not that. And I, I think the problem that we have is the way that the insurance is sold, in my opinion. And I always tell optometrists this. It's like a hamburger value meal. The hamburger is the medical insurance. It's the biggest part of the premium. The dentistry is the fries. It's about $35 to $40 a month. And I think that's dropping a little bit. The vision insurance is the pickle. It's It comes free with the meal. It's there. You like the pickle. You enjoy the pickle. You expect to eat the pickle. But I don't know that it has a tremendous – because you've held that value so low – when you look at how insurance sells, brokers sell things, usually when they bundle them together, they, they do better. It, quite frankly, that's the problem is there's not enough. We've ran the premiums down to the point where you've got health insurance going up and up every year. I don't know that vision insurance, vision insurance, I can't speak for Dell, vision insurance has gone down, which is they're selling three to four year rate locks. So I, yeah, that's part of the problem without a doubt. So how does this all affect the business? Because I, I want to bring this down to the ground. I mean, probably a lot of people are... Yeah thinking, yeah, this is the problem. So you got to be more efficient. You know, there's process. You got to understand things like target market. Who's your best customer? You don't just take the, everybody who walks in the door anymore, because if you do, you end up chasing a lot of very unprofitable, unfortunate things. And then, and I got to build a practice that has like people in it and people with skills, not just like the stereotypical girl from the fifties, you know, in the front of the practice, just kind of being nice. We got to have some business acumen, some management skill, customer service, all the things that happen with that. So was that a shock to you? Oh, gosh, yeah. And I think the part that we are ill-equipped for is you said breaking it down to the business is sometimes you have to learn. No is a lot harder than yes. Yeah. <laughs> say no. I mean, there's, there is yeah. a minimal amount of expense you have in seeing a patient visit. There's only so much of the doctor to go around, so much of the staff to go around. And I don't, I, I think there's a middle ground that you have to be mindful of. I think that if you want to sell good products and you want to practice at a really high level and do the right things, then I think there are some insurances, you know, there, there are vision plans that do a good job. Or uh, people would argue with me on that. They do a better job than others. There are some that are really bad that pay at a really de minimis level, in my opinion. And you need to look at that within your practice to decide, is that something that I can afford to do and run my business the way I want to run it. And that's where you talk about balance, Mark. That's where you talk about happiness because, well, this business has taken X plan and that plan only pays $25 for an exam. I'm giving you a hypothetical example. You have to say no to that. I'm willing to do 
less and be happier because you can get on a rat race that you will never get off of. You have to be profitable. It's okay to be profitable. And I think the crust of it is, Mark, that I think when you get out of school, no one taught you that. And I said, yeah. you don't have to get to that point that, yeah, like, yeah, this isn't <laughs> – Certainly, it's important to have charity, but you've got to be profitable within your business to be able to pay the bills, to practice the way you want to practice. And that goes back to your point on balance is you can't be balanced if you are inevitably chasing something that doesn't exist. You have to be able to do premium products the way you want to do it, if that's your thing. And if it is, you have to be willing to say no. And I think that's hard. Yeah. Well, there's two, two, two ingredients in there. I tend to observe that sometimes there is a fear of profit, that we're supposed to help people. Profitability is bad. And from a business perspective, we have to believe just culturally that profit follows value, that people gladly exchange money for solutions to their problems. And so the bigger the problem you solve, the more people will give money for that and the more profit you should feel happy to receive. And that's a cultural belief system paired up with what you also pointed to, which was if we continue to pursue low value, low margin, old ways of thinking, the well's dry. So we got we have to pursue somewhere where there's water in the well. And then we have to have a culture that says it's okay to get collect water because there's high value to the patients. We are actually providing great care. I think one thing that was surprised that every doctor will laugh at, and if you you've surveyed the public, they would be surprised at Mark. Every time I get a one star review on Google, it hurts my feelings. Every single time, even if I didn't see the patient. Well, XYZ is too expensive. And all that I hear is mm -hmm. you didn't see value. And how did I show that? Mm -hmm. Now, right. when you survey people and they say, well, yeah, I want things less expensive. I want a pair of Costa sunglasses for the price I pull them off the gas station rack. I, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> I mean, I want a Capital Grill meal at the McDonald's value meal price. I get it that those things yeah. are not interrelatable. And some people don't see value in that. But I can tell you in 25 years of practice, every complaint, Every single one hurts my feelings. And you're just like, ah, man, I, it bothers. I would bet that a darn near 100% of your clinicians would say the same, is it bothers them. And whether it, does it get you to change your behavior? And sometimes people are going to be unhappy because you choose to do a certain way because they want the value you have, but they just don't want to pay for it. Or maybe they, unfortunately, if they can't, that sucks. If they don't want to, that's a choice, but you have to be willing to live with that. And that's part of that balance, Mark. You have to, yeah, yeah. you got to be willing to do it and willing to say, no, this is how I'm going to roll. Because in reality, yeah, so if you don't, that's when it gets really uncomfortable. Exactly right. So in EOS, an entrepreneurial operating system, and you don't have to know the system, but we'll talk about it a lot through the series. But if you don't know that, it's not a problem. It's the idea of the target market. Who's your best customer? And so a plastic surgery center that I work with, their target market are sort of this affluent folks who are really care about quality to the point where they're willing to wait a year for a consult. The reputation matters to them. The, there's a lot that goes into this. So the, because of the way their business model works, they kind of pre-select. Like if you're not willing to wait for the, a good outcome, like you're not going to be in line. So anybody who shows up is probably pretty well screened and filtered. So they've got a target market that's almost de facto. Now they lean into it and they build their brand around it and make sure that the outcomes are clear and the doctor's reputations are clear and it all builds on itself. Switch this over to an optometrist practice who's really trying to be upscale. They want to use the very best technology. They want to use the Optimap. They, want to, they don't want to do anything that that's they're not going to dilate your eyes with the chemicals, not going to do any of that kind of stuff because they believe that's the best healthcare for the eyes. And if they, if somebody walks in the front door, who's really considering them in Costco, really trying to figure out how to, you know, 
save $15 or here and there. If they let them into the process, you're inviting that one star because they're not tooled for that. There's going to be a mismatch of the language. And so it's, the, I'm thinking of one in particular that they really have to get comfortable with saying, hey, this is our process. This is what we do here. And it's going to be great for you if this is what you want. And if this isn't what you want, Costco is open right now and you will be better off going there. And we're okay with that. And that is not easy to say, not easy to do. No, and I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, Marcus. It's not only hard to say no to the customer, it's hard to say no to your peer group. So if I opened any journal right now over the last two years, in a nutshell, I would tell you, you know, you need to sell high end, you need to do this, you need to do that. And some of those things, I think, early in my career bothered me because maybe we didn't do well. And just for your listeners' understanding, we had five locations. Three of them are in rural Missouri, about a half an hour to an hour outside of Kansas City, and two are in Kansas City. And our largest locations are in the rural areas, about a half an hour outside of Kansas City. And I would read these journals, and it did say, you have to sell these $1,000 frames, you know, if you're going to do this right. And I would, I'm so cheap. I would go buy them, and they would literally collect dust because... It just wasn't my demographic. And what we finally figured out with time is that really had very little to do with how I chose to practice and the quality of practice that I had. That had to do with my ego. And the reality was, is what I finally figured out is we were working with a marketing professional. He said, well, how would you best sum up your practice? And I said, we're obtainable or affordable luxury. We sell really nice stuff, really good products that are, and we give really high quality care. But I understand that some of my best patients are probably making 15 or $20 an hour in a local factory or maybe work in, a, in an environment that they can't afford a $1,000 frame. And to be honest, I just don't care. That doesn't affect me. As long as I'm selling the kind of quality product that I want to sell mm-hmm. and taking care of them at a high level, that's my demographic. And I think that people do get drug into that, Marcus. A plastic surgeon is certainly not going to practice where I am. Now, I may have some customers that go to them, but that's not going to be their prime demographic. And I can assure you that you can build a really strong practice, a very profitable, multi-million dollar practice and take great care of people. You've got to figure out who you're serving. And when you serve them, it hits the value yeah. problem. And that's a, a lot of nuance, right? Especially optometry is a good one to, that I know enough about where there's kind of this bias towards premium. And if you ask like probably a dozen of the optometrists that I've talked to, they would probably, if asked under pressure, would sub- describe each other similarly. You know, we're a premium provider. But to your point, like, there are some nuances there. Mm-hmm. Like, are we truly luxury? Like, really, like, your patient is willing to pay two or $300 more per visit based on what they're going to experience? That's a very different thing than what you described, which is your, your $15 an hour person probably is willing to pay $20 more for a little better outcome, yeah. as opposed to somebody else who's they want every last dime. They're going to Costco and they're going to get the very, very cheapest thing. And so understanding, you know, is it about fashion? Is it about eye care? Is it about convenience? These things really matter. And it's not, you don't adapt. You don't like play chameleon. Every time they walk in the door, you try to figure this out. You cannot scale the business. You cannot be profitable. You cannot avoid one-star reviews if you are not crystal clear on exactly that avatar. In marketing terms, we would call the avatar. Who's your ideal customer? What do they really need and want emotionally? And it's a complex game and you have to get to the bottom of that It's, well. it's funny you say that because you just put something in my head. I can remember those thoughts in my head and I remember thinking, 
well, what's important is how they see. So I'm never going to skimp on the quality of the lens I put in the frame. You know, and you, it's the hardest thing to pro- provide value. Like is the lens I get at the Bob's nickel and dime up the street. It's a third of the cost. And it's the one thing that people question me on. I'm like, listen, it's what I wear. It's the only thing I'd wear. I want to be comfortable and perform at a high level. And I think when you start with that performance, I felt good. Now, whether they want to buy $350 Tiffany or whether they want to buy $150 Ray-Ban for, you know, a little, both are good frames. But the reality was, is I know they're going to see their best and they can choose how they want to pay for fashion. And I'm sure it's like that in other industries too. But I think you want to talk about practice freedom. It's feeling good about, I know I can buy lenses a lot cheaper. I'm not going to, I'm only going to, I help right. my people to sell the best. And when they believe they're selling the best, then they feel good when they go home. And the customer feels good when they go home. So to me, that was probably the breakaway aha moment of, I don't have to be something I'm not, but I do stand for high quality. And if you want a cheap product, I'm probably not your jam. I mean, you know, right on down the road. I mean, good luck and certainly no hard feelings. I hope you come back. And what we find is they usually do. Mm -hmm. Particularly, Mark, as you get a little older and your visual demands got harder, we found that they came back in and were willing to pay because they needed to see better, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah. What I like about this conversation is it's pointing out that there's a lot of different pieces of the value chain to work with, which on one hand is complex. And that's part of why this is difficult. But what's good about that is you can pick the parts of the value chain that are yours to own. We own the convenient experience or we own high performance vision care of your eyes. We own fashionable styles and other things all along the way. And you can customize that and kind of, it's like, imagine like an equalizer. You can sort of look at your target market. They highly value this. They don't value that. And let's build this to make sure that we're given that experience. And anybody else who is not fit for that, there's a hundred other providers they could go to. And that way, when we have our repeat customers and our repeat customers are telling their friends, they're building a brand that if they want this experience, we can provide that. And I really encourage the visionaries and the practices to be thinking about that in rich detail. Who is, what's the full experience in thing before they show up? Who's in the, fa- how, like optometry has a lot of family orientation. Like you, that's your best buy, right? If you got the mom, this is sort of stereotypical, I suppose, the mom who makes the decision for the whole family. And so you want to win the mom very often or whoever the head of the household is makes a decision to get that family in there. And that's a mindset, but you know, there, there are other ways to look at it. There was a book several years ago, Mark, and I'm going to botch the title. I think it, uh, Power Women, I think was it. But there was a study that said that women between the ages of 30 and 60 make 80 to 85% of all healthcare decisions. Yeah, yeah. Consciously marketed to females because they tend to make those decisions. I think that's interesting is I think about that constantly. Like, are do the back, I mean, it's silly things. Like, you know, that there's a joke at our practice. How do you put on a roll of toilet paper? You roll it over the top, Mark. We're not animals, so you don't roll it at the bottom. Toilet paper rolls. Of course, 100% agree. It's things like, did you make the coffee the right way? And you don't have to spend a lot of money to give the perception of that you care. And that stuff really does matter. I think people really appreciate the little, you know, like, don't buy cheap coffee. Spend an extra $3 because you can't expect them to spend an extra $3 when you're not willing to do it. One of my greatest pet peeves are cheap coffee cups. Is it a good cup? Are they going to burn their hand when they hold the cup of coffee? It's little things like that. I think make a huge difference. They don't always have to be money related. I don't want to turn this too much on you, but I will say all of this comes back to really one simple thing that I think that I hope if there are practitioners out there listening to you, and I think there are, I think you're a pretty popular guy. All of these decisions need to be made 
but I would say the one area that we fail at as a profession in educating, and I see it all over the country, is you can't make those decisions till you know where you are in space financially. And so one of the things that I probably, as my job now, as the general manager of Perkin OptiPort, is we spend more time than anything, Mark, teaching people how to understand their finances. And I know that you think, well, is that part of it? I would tell you it's one of the single biggest parts because you can make any decision you want when you understand the ramifications. And so I would tell you, for me, practice freedom was the moment two, three years into the office that somebody turned me on to KPIs or key performance indicators or statistics. And I can I still have the yellow legal pad that I used to write down seven stats every month. And I'd have them. Yes, before I understood how to run Excel. I, only, I assume Excel existed back in the late 90s. Making sure that you control the things that you can control and know where you are in space, because where people tend to make bad decisions, Mark, is when they go to a scarcity mindset. So there has been an ongoing my my wife is also an optometrist and been my partner for 25 years and Mary Jan in optometry. And she makes the joke that every fall I would make a proclamation that we were going bankrupt because that's when it slows down in our part. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I would say even still recently, if we have a slow month, I'm absolutely certain it's going to be the end of times. And the reality is that when you can go back and you can look at those metrics through time and go, yeah, we slow down in the fall. Like this is what happens. It happens every time this year. Yeah. And if I could encourage people to do one thing is to take control of that and to understand when you set those budgets and you do those KPIs, it's very predictive on what can happen. And when you can control that, that's when you have freedom. That's when you know you can take a vacation at certain periods of the year and have zero fiscal impact on your practice if you're a solo practitioner, because you can take a week off and it's not going to affect production. And I think if Knowing who you are cannot be obtained until you understand the basics of your business. And I would say that is the single key element is that ability to be honest with yourself has to be backed up by data to understand what it means to you. Yeah, I love that. There's a lot there. The prediction skill is such an important skill to have to take advantage of, like you said, the knowledge you've got. And all businesses are bad at prediction. And so that's one of the first disciplines that I teach is that we've got to take a stop every 90 days and say, what's about to unfold over the next 90 days? What's a surprise about this? And the fall is a great time, actually. All businesses I work with, I say, all right, over the next 90 days, what can we get accomplished? And bear in mind, by the way, it's, we'll say it's October. And so it's October now. What's going to happen? Oh, I don't know. Maybe some stuff like oh, Thanksgiving, like Christmas, New Year's, things like that. Is that going to affect your ability to get stuff done? And usually the first year, it's like, yeah, I think so. And then to come back in January, how'd it go? Oh, man, nothing happened. Everybody was unreachable, vacations everywhere. I'm like, ah, was that a surprise? Not really. Well, how come you didn't respond to that? I don't know. (laughs) So what are we going to do next year? Remember that? Okay, so that takes some repetition and prediction. And what you said, like, how many years did it take you? Like 20 (laughs) before you're like, I think the fall is going to be slow. (laughs) But Well, I would tell you that it isn't that. You know, when every practitioner, like you get one one star review, you're certain it's the end of the world and that's going to sink you. But I will say the ability to look backwards, the thought still goes through your head, but the ability to look backwards and go, no, we're actually on pace to have a better fall than we had last year. It just seems slow because we just like the summer and it's those seasons. And I would tell you, Mark, is that when I was a younger practitioner, that's when I made bad choices because I think I got to do anything to get busy. I got to cut my costs. Oh, yeah. And then you start changing your value prop. You don't stay true to who you are. Mm-hmm. And in reality is that's when bad choices are made. And I think that's when people feel the pressure. I will tell you it's in those moments when you make a bad hire, 
you make a bet. I'm going to take this vision plan or I'm going to do X, Y, Z, because I think that's going to bring me in more people and solve this problem. When in reality, you don't have a problem. You're just slow for three months and you've got to have that contextual yeah, right. data to be able to step back. And by the way, if you're listening and you're not doing that, it does take a few years to get enough data. You don't just start off. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like planting a tree. It takes a while so you can sit under the shade. You got to have a couple of yeah. years with the data to figure it out. And also for anyone listening, that problem, we don't have enough time to unpack it, but you can look it up. The concept of measurables and metrics we call trailing 12 months. Trailing 12 months is a way of tracking all of the last 12 months as a whole to, and you, every month you recalculate it and it allows you to see seasonality. So without going, that may be another podcast episode we're dig into. But, yeah. Yeah. Trailing 12 months is the most powerful numbers you can use to dial out seasonality. And because in, in case in point, if the fall is always slow, it's always going to be slower. So it's always going to feel like you're losing altitude and that's always going to be unnerving. In trailing 12 months, you get to capture the whole comparison to see, are we still tracking above or below the same pattern last year? And so it answers the question, are we better off or not in no uncertain terms? And so if you're struggling with that and you have the data, trailing 12 months is the answer. If you reach out, if you need help or guidance on that, but certainly look that up. Mark, you know, what's great about today's computer systems is two things. It's Excel and the fact that you can run reports backwards. And it is not uncommon at all to go back two or three years and take the time to run the reports, to punch them into your data. You know, it isn't you don't have to wait two years, but you do have to have a couple of years worth of data. But your computer has it. It's just sitting there waiting for you. You just got to yeah, out. Yeah. Another thing you touched on, I want to go back to that you were talking about. We believe in quality coffee cups. I don't want my employees and I don't want my customers to be like, have a coffee cup burning their hand. That doesn't fit my core values or whatever. He didn't say core values, but what it implies. And this ties back into the concept of who's our best customer, which comes from knowing ourselves, right? We know who we are, know who we value. Very often, we're trying to take care of our past selves, and I'm getting kind of deep on this concept, but as a visionary entrepreneur, the, what we're passionate about might be related to our own beliefs and our own lives and our own life experiences or something we've learned along the way. So understanding ourselves and how that relates to our, our customer and our target patient and our target client, whatever that ends up being, those are highly related. But the essence of what you said there, I want to really drive home. You can have anything you want in your practice or in your business. You cannot have everything you want in your practice. So you're going to have to choose the things that matter most and build formulas for that. Look, we don't buy cheap stuff around here, you know, and we always buy the little bit better thing, which is a different thing than we always buy from Neiman's, which is a different thing than just whatever works. We make sure that the customer experience is really high and whatever it is, you cannot have everything in the business that everybody else has. When you look around and somebody has something really cool, it's amazing. If you keep collecting all those great ideas and try to implement them all, you will dive into gestion. You will not be able to buy all that stuff. You will not be able to keep track of it. You're going to have to figure out the essence of what the few things that matter most that you simply cannot live without that simply violate what matters most. I think when you look at the... uh the adaption scale, that's a sine wave. Mm-hmm. And the early adapters go by everything. I am definitely not an early adapter. And in 25 years, I was big at going to shows, trade shows and saying, hey, you want to pack this equipment back up or do you want me to buy it from you right here on the floor at a nice discount? And I think those are things that I was always very comfortable doing. And you may not be, but I think you're absolutely right. I see over and over practitioners, they see this idea Particularly, we see it a lot today with a lot of the aesthetics, lasers, and things like that. If you don't have a demographic that serves just because it works over here, it may not work for you. And I think if you don't know who you are, you're going to fall in that trap because sales reps are very good at explaining all the money you're going to make from this machine or this service or this product. But the reality is 
is. Right. If you don't have a patient base that meets that, you just bought another anchor. I bought a few paperweights in my career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't think I did, but I did. So I, it just is what it is. It's almost, it's a, a little bit of a learning experience, but you're absolutely right. Is What are your core values? I would say that above all, the EOS system helps you to define that. And not only, you can't be the only one defines it. You have to define it with your team and they have to believe in it too. Because just if the doctor thinks one way and the staff thinks another, you are never going to get where you need to be. So it has to be a complete you have to preach that across across the whole paradigm of your team and your staff. Well, you touched on it, really kicked it off in the first part of the interview. You said it's easy to say yes, hard to say no. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the essence of this. So there's lots I can unpack with that. And I guess all since I touched on it, human beings are programmed for scarcity, right? We know what happens when the famine happens. We know what happens when the crop doesn't come in. We know when war breaks out that we got to rally. Now, it's not fun, but we're wired to figure out how to handle adversity and scarcity. And that's the tools we've developed. We don't know what to do with abundance. If we've got too much food, we just eat it. If it's too if it's too affordable, we just collect more of it. You know, if we got more space, we just fill it up. And so as human beings, all of our diseases and issues are related to not being wired for handling abundance and how to say no. And so in our business, is no different. Saying no is hard. And so how do we do that? Because somebody brings you that latest piece of equipment. Well, it got to have that too. Got to have that. Of course, it sounds great. I mean, you, what you finished the sales pitch with was amazing. Because if we haven't done the work, we haven't figured out what matters most to us. What are what do we value? What's our focus? What's our purpose for being here as a business? Why did I start this thing in practice in the first place? What's going to make me feel great about having run it for 20 years as opposed to having wasted two decades of my life? Have we answered those questions? And these are really hard and impo- truly important. These are practical questions. This is not academic stuff. You really must know this stuff. And as you get older you start to realize that, yeah, there might be some truth to that. And so once we have those questions answered and the organization knows the answers, we shared them, we got that vision clear and everybody knows our core values. Everyone knows our core focus as, as an organization. The whole organization can kind of say together, you know what? No, <laughs> it does sound good. It doesn't fit the formula. We all agree together. Here's no and why. And we don't have to question that. And that's that's not accidental work. Oh, yeah. That's the result of having done the work. I will. I know we're getting close to an end here, but I will tell you a funny story is that I'd been in practice about two or three years and I hired a consultant because I was certain I was the worst doctor ever and told this guy, yeah, I want to sell this. I'm going to move. It was across state lines and there was another practice. And I tell him this whole story. It takes like an hour and blah, blah, blah. And he sat back in his chair and I'll never forget it. He said, I'm going to ask you a question. He goes, I need you to give me an honest answer. I said, sure. He said, what makes you think you're going to be any smarter 90 miles away? I just was like, what do you mean? He goes, it's the same problem. Geography and zip code doesn't change the problem. He goes, you do what I tell you to do for a year. And if you're still not happy, I'll buy the practice from you myself. And I remember I thought, I think about that all the time. He just said, you know, I think that is the knee jerk reaction, Mark, is that we're not patient. And we assume that it's a change of this or a change of that. And reality is it was heading in the right direction. I didn't understand what my core values were. And I was just chasing everything. And when I narrowed that down, I started to really look at what we did and what we did well. I suddenly was happy. It's a bizarre thing. But knowing where you're going and what you're doing, even if you're going there at 35 mile an hour versus 70 mile an hour, is a wildly satisfying. And the problem is that you can't get caught up in what you think you should do. You should get caught up in what you know you should do. I can speak for experience. I didn't move those 90 miles and it was probably the best decision we ever made. But I always <laughs> think about that when I'm doing something like what would make me smarter 90 miles from here? Probably nothing. So maybe I should just dive in here a little bit and do the hard work. The acres of diamonds, right? If you know that story, you know, you hunt the world for a diamond field only to find out it was in your backyard. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I can see that too. Which that's a very good story that I summarize in one sentence. Spoiler alert. So, <laughs> well, man, we we covered a lot of fun stuff, and I'm so grateful for the time. I feel so good. I'm glad we could catch up a little bit. We're just cr- scratching the surface on all this. Yeah. It was so much stuff we're going to unpack over the next seasons, and and I encourage people to re- give us some feedback and all things that go with that. Is there anything we we didn't cover? You want to make sure is in the conversation today. No, but we need to get together sometime and talk about, you know, you hit on that measurables and how to measure things and what really matters. I think if you're talking about practice freedom, that's, it's got to involve financial freedom. It's making sure it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be rich, but it is knowing who you are and where you're going and having data to back up those emotions. Because it's like, you said it really well, Mark, scarcity mindset makes you do dumb things and to realize that, Hey, where I'm at is totally okay. And it's doing well. And we're on the path to where we need to be. I think that's a really powerful conversation. Yeah, absolutely, man. So that was going to be my next question, your passionate plea for practice owners. And it sounds like that's probably it. So is there anything you want to add to that? Or is that your passionate plea for? I I think for practice owners is I think the healthiest and happiest practice owners I see are people who, this is going to sound strange, probably get out of the clinic a little bit. They maybe work three, three and a half days a week, and they actually devote a day a week to running their practice. And those folks tend to be the happiest and the most balanced because what happens is when you're in the exam room, you're thinking about what all the things that need to be done. When you're doing the things that need to be done, you think about, well, I need to see more patients or you're worried about being at home and putting yourself on that schedule and realistically understanding what you can produce when it's time to bring in an associate and grow the enterprise. And maybe when it's time to add a location is all based on if you don't do the work as your point and to take the time to understand where you are in space and where you want to be, you will never get where you're going. You're just going to sit in the exam room all day long and you're going to look down at the end of the year and go, yeah, I did okay, but I felt like I was on a hamster wheel and I didn't get anywhere. So I think that's the most important thing you can do is to do that time and that work. Awesome, man. Such a great way to end it. You know, I'm so grateful for the time. Like, as I mentioned, I don't know what people will get out of this, but I've gotten a ton. I'm so grateful for the time. And I'm so excited now more than ever to keep the journey going, to keep unpacking this. There's a lot here, a lot of details, and it matters. It makes a difference in the people's lives in all three aspects, the ownership of this practice, the people who work there, who are trying to live a good life and the patients were and anybody were in the healthcare system, we're trying to take care of. I mean, all the stuff really matters. And there's a lot of obstacles now more than ever, more obstacles to having all three of those things. It's impossible to give truly good empathetic care if you're not fully engaged in the moment. I firmly believe, Mark, you cannot be engaged in the moment if you don't have your time and things in balance. You're going to get burned out in healthcare. Patients are going to feel it. They're going to feel like a number. And quite frankly, no one's going to be happy. I mean, you've got to be happy in what you do. That's no way to live life. You only get to do it once, right? So big fan of that's the right way the first time. All right. Well, that's our time for today. We'll do this again. We'll do something later this year for sure. And, you know, if you'll have me, <laughs> but this is, this is so fun. And, uh, but that's it for today. If you're listening to this, please subscribe. That helps us see who's really interested in hearing more. So that does make a difference. If you click the subscribe button, you know, if you don't want to hear more, don't click subscribe. <laughs> but if you want to know what we're up to, and if you want to send the message that we're sending, sending you valuable stuff, subscribe does matter to us. Share with your friends who could also get value out of this content because it doesn't do any good if this not in the hands of people who can benefit from it. And like I mentioned, any feedback you can offer us is super helpful. All reviews, all feedback, we take them very seriously. So we'll see you next time on Practice Freedom with me, Mark Henderson-Leary. 